Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Big one tonight in the Big East between Butler and Villanova. And Jimmy, you were telling me Butler right now stands. And I do, listen, I, I, I kind of mock, like mock drafts and that kind of thing. The one that is... I'm convinced of this. I think Joe Lenardi, when it comes to the bracketology, I'm not going to say that like he's scooped, so to speak, but like he, whatever formula he has is very similar to the tur- tournament selection committee because he usually is like, he misses like one team. So it's a very good barometer. And like when you go out on a frozen pod and you start to hear that, and you know that it's, Things are a little bit tenuous. That's where Butler is right now, right? Yeah, so Butler's in the last four in Lenardi's latest bracketology that released earlier today. They are the best of the last four in teams. So he has like a seed line ranking, one, two, three, four, fourth being the worst, that top spot being the best. They're in the best position of the last four in teams that include Gonzaga, Seton Hall, who Butler still has to play, and Ole Miss. Okay, and Seton Hall right now at 10-5 and five in the conference, but 17-9 and nine overall. Nick Gardner now joins us to talk about Butler. Nick, reality is the dogs are 7-8 and eight in conference, but 16-10 and 10 overall. So clearly, Lenardi and or prospective committee members would be impressed with what Butler, would it be more so what Butler did at a conference or simply the way that they have played here in the second half of the season that kind of tips the cap for them? You know, I think it's a little bit of both, Jake. Thanks for having me on. First of all, good to join you guys. Um, I think, number one, you look overall, you've got, like, Boise, the win over Boise State down in Orlando. That's a good one. Boise State's numbers are good, so you've got to win over them. That Texas Tech win in the non-conference looks pretty good. That's one that they throw up there. Um, and, and I think maybe even most importantly, part of why they're positioned so well is they've avoided any bad losses, right? All of their losses pretty much have been – Q1, Q2 losses. They've avoided those Q3 and Q4 things. So there's no bad losses on the resume. Um, and you've got some big wins, obviously, over Marquette, at Marquette, at Creighton. So you put yourself in a position now where if you can you know, take care of business. And now, Jake, you've got to, especially this week, right, where you're, you're playing, you're at Nova tonight at Seton Hall on Saturday. You've got matchups against two of those teams that you're seeing that you're grouped in with. Um, as far as next four out and, and that are on the bubble. So you can really solidify yourself. For instance, tonight you get a, you get a sweep. Uh, you get a win over Nova. You got a sweep over Nova. You got to think you're above them in the pecking order. So a big, big week of opportunity continues for the dogs. Butler Radio Network analyst Nick Gardner joins us. Nick, I was in attendance for that Providence game, and it was great to see a Butler win on Super Bowl weekend and see a good packed crowd at Hinkle Fieldhouse, as has been the case. But that game led to a string of the last three, including that Providence game, giving up north of 40 in the second half and being outscored in the second half in each of the last three games. They're one and two in those games, though they've played three games over their last seven days. Is this a fatigue thing towards the end of the season for Butler as to why defensively things have been down in the second half and the offense hasn't been able to pick it up? Or is it something else that you can point to as an area that can be fixed for Butler in the home stretch? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a fatigue thing. I think this group, um, you know, really, you look back at that second half on Saturday against Creighton, that was kind of the one time that this team wasn't able to punch back. They kind of got hit in the mouth in that second half to start, and they were never able to really recover. And that that's the aberration. For the, the norm has been this team has been able – it's about now they haven't come back and won all those, um, but they've been able to, to kind of throw a counter punch, and you just didn't see that. I think part of it was um, the offense let the dogs down early on Saturday, and with Creighton, you've got to keep pace with Creighton just because of how quickly they play, how potent they are offensively, and I think you saw how it snowballs against a team like that. Go back to the Marquette game last week, um, man. I think that that was more Marquette's ability to execute more than anything. So certainly, look, this is a team that has won more games with their offense than their defense. Um, now the defense has to be at a certain level so you can allow your offense to function. And so certainly you've got to improve in that area. Um, I think a lot of that was probably more so the opponents, but yet you've got to get a little bit better on that end of the floor because this team, when, when, you, when you're playing you know, decent enough defense and rebounding the basketball well, 
you're giving yourselves opportunity to get up the floor and score, and that's how this team has beaten the good opponents by by just outscoring them oftentimes. Nick Gardner is our guest talking about Butler, the Bulldogs again taking on Villanova. Nick, if you were to go back, because this is a team that is that is obviously you know, markedly different than, say, November, early December, right? I mean, it's kind of come together before our very eyes. But if I was to go back to, let's say, Thanksgiving time, and I'm sitting down with you at Thanksgiving, and I have come from the future, and I'm saying this is what they're going to look like in late, mid to late February, who is the player that is contributing for Butler right now that in November you would not have guessed so? And perhaps that's been the difference for them. Well, I think, you know, one guy, Jalen Thomas, has been playing really well. And, and I think you go all the way back to that first, the win at Marquette a while back. He really, like, that's when his play kind of picked up. And he's just been much more active. He's rebounded the ball really well. Look, he scored 19 um, on Saturday against Creighton. And so, for the most part, you've had, you know, B.J. Davis, Pierre Brooks, Jamil Telfort, Posh Alexander, man, they've been pretty consistent throughout. And, and Jalen has come on of late. And so if you can kind of get those guys back, Pierre's been a little more quiet of late. Um, but if you can kind of get those guys back playing at the, the level they've been accustomed through all year, and then you get Jalen Thomas's production, I think that's the guy who can really be kind of an X factor the next month or so. If he can continue uh, to be as active and scoring the basketball as well, that's just another threat that makes it really tough to guard this group when the dogs are on offense. Nick Garner of the Butler Radio Network, nice enough to take some time with us. Nick, I know that a 22-9 and COVID season is mixed into this stretch, but it's pretty incredible with all the success that Butler had from the 2000s onward to think that it's been six years since they've been a part of March Madness, and that has done an incredible job. The fact that they are in the position that they're in in year two when I think outside the program, maybe not inside, but from an outsider's perspective, it feels like maybe they're a year ahead of where they're supposed to be. But, hey, these opportunities, you got to take advantage of them when they're there. From your perspective, what does that mean that they could potentially end this drought and be maybe ahead of schedule to some if they close strong these next couple weeks? Uh, it's, uh, I think you're right, Jimmy. I think this, you know, when you look at this group that the staff targeted, um, and look, this was before kind of the court rulings allowed for a second transfer without sitting out. At the time, they thought that that wasn't going to be possible. So they went and targeted guys that had an opportunity for another year and it transferred already. So, so in, in theory, right, this is a kind of a two-year plan with this group with the idea of getting them back next year and then really being ready to go. So if that's the idea, man, you are ahead of schedule a little bit. But just like you said, Jimmy, like, just because you're ahead of schedule doesn't mean you can't pounce on this opportunity. It would mean everything for this program to get back in the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, you mentioned all the success you had going back to the, you know, kind of the, the, the stepping stone that this group had been on, this, this program had been on, where you, you know, go all the way back to 99, where you're right there in the first round. Then you take the next step the following year and you kind of climb that ladder onto the, those, those great seasons in 11 and 10. Um, but, but make no bones about it, that is the goal, right? Whether it's a year ahead of schedule or not, you've got an opportunity in front of you, and you've got a really good opportunity with the schedule, how it, how it unfolds you know, down the stretch here. So um, whether you're a year ahead of schedule or not, um, they, know, they understand the opportunity at hand, and they understand the importance for Butler of being in the tournament and being a perennial contender. And so I think they're going to play with that type of urgency down the stretch. Nick, we oftentimes, Nick Gardner's our guest, we oftentimes ask or expect players or teams to kind of reinvent themselves if they're not playing well over the course of a year. You know, hey, they, they were playing this style of offense, now they need to start doing this, you know, whatever else. We, we expect players to mature and change. And oftentimes we expect players to just – buy into whatever the coach is selling and if it falls short it's on the players not the coach you know unless it becomes habitual how is Thad Mata in the two years that he's been at Butler now coming back and I know that you probably didn't watch him game in and game out at Ohio State but I think we all paid a little bit of attention because of his Butler connection how has Thad Mata evolved in year number two here at Butler how is he a different coach philosophically approach whatever it may be in any way shape or form than what he was the day he took the job? That's a good question. I think, 
I, I don't know that he's changed a lot. I think what he did was he went and went, went and got a roster that is more suited to how he coaches. I think one thing Coach Wilde does a great job of is he is going to instill confidence in his players. They are going to have belief in themselves and in each other that is on par with no other coach they've played for. Like, that's what he does. And, you know, I think he, like, he, he knows the stuff, right? And, and, and the technical, the strategic stuff, he's on top of. But, but I think what he really excels in is making sure those guys are ready. So I'm not sure much of what he's done has changed. I think he's got his core philosophy. And what he has is a group of guys that he trusts and he believes in that believe in each other as well. And I think early on it was, hey, listen to me, believe in me, like, like without any substance behind it. But then when you get some victories and, and you're going through those experiences, now you have the substance behind it and that belief comes, becomes even greater. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not sure so much has changed a lot. I think more so what he's done is he's surrounded himself with guys who are more his type of guy to coach. And in turn, he's able to just dig in on what he wants to do. And they've responded really, really well in a quick matter of time. You know, in a portal era, an NIL era where, man, it's hard to create chemistry. This group did it, and they fast-tracked it. And that's why they're kind of ahead of schedule, as Jimmy talked about. Nick, I know this is a weird question because they've been a part of this now for a decade, but you've gone through, if you include Brandon Miller, you've gone through four coaches for, for mainly good reasons. Obviously, Laval's time had you know, come to a pass and they were ready to move on and go in a different direction, but there's only been a handful of marks of long-term stability at the head coaching position for other different reasons in their 10 short years in the Big East. Does it feel like with that there's finally a sense of belonging is not the right word, but people criticize the move when it happened. I was a fan of it because it, it's Butler finally a part of a real high-level conference where they're always going to be in tournament conversations now and don't have to deal with the dread of losing to Cleveland State on a Tuesday. No disrespect to the Horizon yeah. League, but that could end the season, whereas if it's yeah. Seton Hall on a Wednesday, not as big a deal. Is there a sense now... 10 years in that, no, they, they really belong and are already on or have been on the right track in the conference. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think you're exactly right. Um, like there's no pressure like Indiana state right now, they are playing with the most pressure of maybe anybody in college basketball, right? Like they, they can't slip up and, and they, sadly, they, they kind of wore that last week. And so now you're in a position where you've got all these opportunities. I think you're right. I think that it has been solidified. Now, at the same time, I still think there's, there's a chip on, a lot of, uh, on the shoulders of a lot of Butler folks to go get some more respect from the Big East, right, to go get some more wins and to try to prove themselves to those old-school Big East blue bloods, for lack of a better term. And so I don't, I don't know that it's, um, it, it's kind of built over time. I don't know that it's necessarily changed here in the last two years. I think it's just a continue, like, how do we grow? How do we get better? How can we set this program and this school up for sustained success? And certainly with, with a guy like that at, at your leadership, you, you feel really good about it. This is a guy who's won a ton of games. He's built big-time programs. And so you feel good about it. But I don't know if it's been like an epiphany or anything over the last couple of years. I think that's something that's just been building over the 10 years in the league. Hey, have you since Nick – Rick Pitino, you know, caught a lot of national headlines this week for being pretty critical of his his cast at St. John's. Did you sense at all in, in watching their games like a frustration from Pitino? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that, that was an interesting press conference, to say the least. He kind of doubled down on it, too, over the last I know. couple days. And you can. You're Rick like, Pitino. You can, right? Yeah, I guess. He can sit there and lie to us all and expect us to believe it, but um, – I think there's no doubt. And, and, you know, the irony is he, he built the roster. Um, he went and, and, and they were fine back in October. So um, I, I think that's the other side of, of this kind of era of college sports, right, is um, you, you've got to make decisions in a really short window on transfer portal guys. And, and, and you've got to make those decisions really quickly over Zoom, whereas in the past, if you're recruiting a high school guy, you may have two, three years to get to know a guy and, and kind of get to know their intangibles. So – um, I think there's been a little bit of that. And obviously, St. John's is kind of – they're going through it right now. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how they respond. Um, from my butler-colored lenses, I hope they stay in it for a while here because we play them in about 10 days. So I hope they're going through it still in a week and a half or so. 
Nick, esoterically speaking, I'll simply say this. I'll owe you the public apology, even though I think I did it privately. Um, I I caught like a ton of grief from the organizer of the North Central Panther State Champion Reunion Tour. Now, that you guys won the state in what year? 1999. Okay, so that was eight years after I graduated. Um, I, I assume that everything went okay with my absence there, right? Like it, the, I wasn't really a necessary participant. It went as well as it could go, Jake, without <laughs> the legendary Jake Query there. I mean, I mean you know, come we, on. We had, to, we had to cut out the 25-minute Jake Query tribute video. <laughs> I so we had some extra time in there. But, yes, it, it, surprisingly enough, it went along swimmingly well, even though you weren't there. They asked me to come, and I'm like, well, that was my cousin that played, Lucas Query. I was not on the 99 team. I was, <laughs> I was 27 years old at that time. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was cool, though. You know? yeah, aside from me having to answer 75 questions about where Jake Query was, that day, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was sure. a great day. <laughs> the thing is, they were all from the same guy. That's the only thing. <laughs> that's the concerning thing, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Dogs in Villanova. Nick, we appreciate it. Anytime, fellas. Thanks for having me. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Now, I always get confused. Eddie Garrison, I will allow you to illuminate for me. Is it Lafayette Courier Journal or Lafayette Journal Courier? Journal and Courier in West Lafayette, I believe, is the proper terminology. It's definitely a Lafayette paper, right? It's the Lafayette Journal and Courier? Yes. So it's a journal, and then the courier is the guy on the bike, right? So the journal would be the paper. The courier is the person delivering it. I'm confused by all of it, but Sam King writes for him and joins us on the program, and I'm sure is thrilled to be doing so with that introduction. Sam, it's Lafayette Journal and Courier, correct? That's correct. It's not the worst introduction I've ever had, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so hold on. Before we get to everything else, you're an aficionado of baseball stadiums, correct? Uh, aficionado in terms of I've been to almost all of them, but uh, they keep building new ones and keeping me uh, racking up airline miles to try to get to all of them. Okay, here we go. I've been to, I don't know, probably 80% of them. So um, we'll, we'll do this real quick before we start talking about Purdue. Baseball stadium that... I mean, obviously, everybody loves Fenway. Everybody loves Wrigley. I get it, right? Give me the one that when you went into it, you're like, you know what? This is actually cooler than I would have guessed, and it doesn't get any love whatsoever. Which one? Uh, I have one in mind here. I I would say Baltimore. The uniqueness of that and just the warehouse being built into the stadium, uh, I thought was pretty cool. Okay, I'll agree, except for that like Camden Yards is typically listed by most as like one of the three best parks in the country, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So I'm talking about those that never get mentioned, like like you would never guess it. Oh, boy. Uh, I was kind of blown away by Dodger Stadium just uh, because when you're driving to the stadium, you're kind of like, I'm closed, but it doesn't look like this is an area where there'd be a baseball park. And then you turn the corner and you just see the drive up into uh, the parking lot, and it, it kind of blows you away and kind of seems – out of place a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts on think- Wrigley Field, Sam? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, we're going with the five most historic and beloved stadiums of all time. Uh, Dodger is great, and if you ever go to Dodger Stadium and you're hearing my voice, you got to go up to one of the top decks and then look down on home plate. It's awesome. Then you turn around and downtown LA is right behind you. It's fabulous. The weather's perfect. Um, the one that I'm going to go with, Sam, and you tell me if you've been to this one, I thought nothing of going into and didn't think I would think anything of I don't even know what the name of the stadium is now because, to your point, they change names all the time too. But the Angels home stadium. When I walked around the Angels stadium, I thought it was a really nice, easy-to-get-around park, and the outfield with the rocks and the waterfall was super cool. So I've been to every park currently besides uh, Anaheim and Kansas City. So I can't uh, – you know, I'm going to – Cincinnati is a kind of a cool ballpark, I think, with the you know downtown in the background and then just the uniqueness of the, the smokestacks in the outfield and the river behind – uh, right field. I, I think that's one that probably doesn't get a lot of love that that probably deserves it. Okay, biggest dump. Definitely Oakland. Yeah, man. I mean, there there there's a reason they left, right? When I went to I went to Oakland to an A's game, and literally 
like two weeks later, they had a game suspended because they had raw sewage floating through the visiting team's clubhouse. <laughs> that does not surprise me. That's a, that's an uh, issue, but, right? When I was in Oakland, I sat out in the outfield just in some random seats and was the only person, you know, within four sections. Oh, and, totally. Uh, I'm surprised uh, you get, they got the tarp up, right? Yeah. Somebody came out and told me I had to go back to my seat. And I was like, you're going to make me move to my seat when, you know, there's 5,000 people in the, in a football stadium. It's why the you, best. Where, where anyone is sitting right now. So. It's the best. I know. And not to mention, if you go on the wrong night, it's like 45 degrees there. But, okay, Sam King, we're talking about Purdue is the reason we have you on, obviously. Boilers and Rutgers up next at Mackey. Let's begin with what happened at Ohio State. Were there trends in that game that you see as concern for the home stretch, or do you chalk it up as just kind of an anomaly every once in a while you get a bad day? No, I, you know, I, I kind of got in a mini Twitter feud with somebody over this where I said it, it's not shocking if Purdue goes to Ohio State and loses. Um, when you look at Ohio State's season as a whole and the record and the fact that the, the coach has been fired there, yeah, it's maybe a little bit shocking. But when you look at individual talents, I think Ohio State is a bad matchup. Uh, Bruce Thornton is a big, strong guard that scores a lot of points. Uh, and then Jamison Battle is a guy that just got hot. And, and it seems like the formula for beating Purdue, at least this year, is hitting three-point shots and uh, forcing turnovers and getting points off of turnovers. And those two things uh, both happened with, with Jamison Battle hitting three threes and I don't know, a, a minute stretch there when Ohio State really opened the gap and then uh, getting, I think Ohio State had 24 points off of turnovers in the three losses. Uh, I think it's been 20-plus uh, points maybe average off of turnovers that the opponents have gotten. So uh, pretty easy to win a game when you're getting that kind of production just off, you know, throwing the ball out of bounds is bad, but at least you get to go back and be on defense. When you throw the ball away and it's a, an easy layup, um, that's, you know, maybe a four- or five-point swing that's uh, – you can't afford on the road in the Big Ten, and uh, it caught up to Purdue. But I don't think it's anything that uh, is going to carry over this week, and, and you're going to have to worry about long term. I think you know the last two times this happened, Purdue turned around and went on, uh, I think, a seven-game winning streak and then a nine-game winning streak. So you kind of hope to uh, even have a longer winning streak that extends all the way to Phoenix uh, if you're a Purdue fan right now. Sam King of the Lafayette Journal-Courier joins us. Sam, you mentioned guard play and the idea because Ohio State is able to platoon a couple of those of bigger-sized guards. And guard play for Purdue has been the biggest praise point outside of Zach Eady being Zach Eady this year. The growth that you've seen from guys like Fletcher, Lawyer, year over year. If they are to draw in the tournament, I know we're mapping things out, is there anything from this season and it's only three losses. That's how good they are, right? We're, we're nitpicking to some extent. But is there any thought that if they go up against equally skilled guards that are bigger, that are more physical, that it could give them problems like it did over the weekend? Uh, I mean, sure. Um, but I think last year, I, I really thought Purdue overachieved last year, especially when you're talking about Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith starting every game as freshmen. And they... Even if they won't admit it, they definitely hit a wall late in the season last year. I think that both of those guys, and I know Fletcher Lawyers had some games here where you look at him and, and think, why is he out on the floor? But I think that you know, Braden Smith has been steady all season long. Uh, he's been one of the best players in the country, and uh, the Naismith watch list uh, apparently thinks so as well, even if the Kuzi Award didn't recognize him as a top-10 point guard. Um, but I, I think Purdue maybe has – more weapons. Lance Jones has been magnificent and probably beyond anything anybody thought he would be uh, coming in here. Uh, so I think that gives you another ball handler. It gives you another guard that's, you know, uh, with five years of experience that uh, is going to help you in those situations. But I really think that those two that, that you mentioned are, are more ready for anything that might come this year as opposed to last year where they let things like a, a press and certain things bother them at times in a on top of that, just got to a point where neither one of those guys was uh, were able to give you a lot of point production because they couldn't hit shots. Sam, as Purdue heads down the home stretch here, Sam King, our guest, talking about Purdue. He covers them, of course, for the Lafayette Courier and Journal, no, Journal and Courier, right? Correct. Journal and Courier. JNC is what everybody just calls it here. Okay. The Lafayette JNC. I'm going to write this down. JNC. Okay. Uh, the Lafayette JNC. I like that. Okay, and you can buy vitamin supplements while you're at the J&C, by the way, in, up in Lafayette. <laughs> uh, Sam King joining us. Sam, 
how much down the home stretch now, as Purdue gets into games in tight situations, that in December doesn't bother them, and they eke out, you know, they close on an 11-3 run, and they win a game where it's tight late. How much now in those situations does Fairley Dickinson start to re-creep again and just apply that pressure and those nerves? I think, uh, I mean, it's hard to tell until it happens, but that this is a weird thing to say right now uh, on the spot, but that might have been the best thing that happened to last year's team is losing that game to Fairley Dickinson where you think you're – uh, facing an inferior opponent and you can get by just, you know, not playing well and, and you're a one seed and you should win that game. Um, you know, everybody is in the NCAA tournament because it earned its way in there uh, and you're not just going to walk over anybody. I think that's given a lot more attention to detail and, and maybe the biggest telling sign I've seen out of this whole season was after the loss at Northwestern. And last year, I think this team would have been hanging its head. Uh, everybody would have been down or people would be getting on each other a little bit and, Everybody came out of that game, and, and we talked to Fletcher Lawyer after, and he said, you know, everybody's positive. They know you don't go through a season and go undefeated. You're going to have losses and setbacks. And maybe Purdue doesn't, you know, go into the tournament and, and make a run, but I think the team is kind of more prepared for what's to come. Uh, to everybody on that team's credit, to Matt Painter's credit for uh, starting at the top and trickling down, they've owned that loss to FDU. Uh, everybody knows those questions are going to come up here in a few weeks. And I think that uh, they've just kind of accepted, yeah, that happened, but can you learn from it? And uh, I think that the, the Boilermakers have this season. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Sam King of the Lafayette Journal-Courier joins us. Sam... Oftentimes, when a team, regardless of their seed, makes a run in March, there are a player or two that maybe weren't high-level contributors night in and night out, but were valuable pieces that step up and have a big moment in March. It can even happen in conference tournaments, which are just a couple of weeks away. When you look at this roster, outside of the clear star power that Purdue has, who is the piece that maybe isn't night in and night out stealing the box score but would be your candidate to make a significant impact when Purdue needs it in March? I'm going to give you two names here, and maybe that's unfair because that's not what you asked. But I said one uh, or two. You're good. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Trey Kaufman Rand is going to probably have a lot of one-on-ones, especially if you get in the tournament and face teams that you haven't seen because of the way teams are going to defend Zach Eady. And he, you know, he may just have some open looks because of it. And, and Trey Kaufman Wren is a you know, magnificent player that we would be talking a lot more about if Purdue wasn't so reliant on what Zach Eady can do. So I think he could pop off and have a, a big game where he goes off for 20, 25 points, and people are going to ask where it came from. Well, it came from the fact that a team completely focused on shutting down another guy, and uh, you get the looks because of it. Uh, an X-factor name that nobody probably is talking about right now is Miles Colvin because we've seen when he gets in games and gets, you know, 10 to 12 minutes, he can come in there and, and give you, you know, two or three three-pointers, and he's not afraid to shoot. He's not gun-shy whatsoever. And his ability as a freshman to come in and be confident enough to step in and take a shot when he gets the ball uh, is huge. And I think that's something that even though he's, not played, I think, in five games now this season and, and not played a whole lot of minutes here uh, lately. Uh, you get into a game where you need a guy to come in and make shots. He's somebody that can come in and, um, you know, probably give you, a, you know, eight, nine points in a matter of five or six minutes that's uh, probably not a guy that's on somebody else's scouting report. Sam, this is perhaps a premature question, but so we don't have to get into specifics of names, I guess, but. I think it's remarkable what Purdue did from last year to this year in terms of continuity of roster in today's era of NIL and transfer portal and everything else, especially when we've seen some guys who were used to big-time minutes having to take more complementary roles. But yet there's such an expectation. Is this, at least for this particular group, if you will, like a final push? If they don't get it done this year or they fall short again – is Purdue going to see an entire, like, just kind of remarkable turnover of roster, including guys that have eligibility to come back? 
there will be, because of the large recruiting class coming in, there will be at least somebody who leaves who still has eligibility. Um, I mean, one of those is Zach Eady for sure. Um, I mean, I'd be shocked if he doesn't uh, this time stay in the NBA draft. But uh, I don't know, other than guys who have been around four or five years, I'm not you know, sure any of these guys leave because the, the recruiting class coming in it is ultra-talented. But um, kind of to your point, it's taken a lot of buy-in from some guys who were, have been starters in the past, who've had a lot larger uh, roles in the past, and you're asking now Ethan Morton to come in and play defense for three minutes and pulling him right back out. This is a guy who was Mr. Basketball in Pennsylvania uh, coming to Purdue and was you know, a, a big-time part of this team as a sophomore and, and even uh, to some degree last year as a junior, now not playing a whole lot of minutes. Caleb first, uh, before the season, I talked to him and said something along the lines of, you know your role is going to be limited this year. And he said, yes, but the team is going to be really good. You sacrifice in order to win games. So it's all good when you're winning games. When you're 23-3, and three, everybody's happy with their role because it's working. But if you lose two or three games in a row, you know, people are going to be asking questions. People are already asking questions like, why is Mason Gillis not starting and things of that nature? But, you know, you can answer that with, we're winning games. Why would we change things up? Um, so far, Purdue has faced minor adversities in terms of losing in three games. And, and if that's the, the worst of your season, you take it. But um, if you lose a couple here in a row or this carries over and, and you do lose against Rutgers, which is a team that has been, you know, Purdue's boogeyman for the last few years, it seems like, um, then some of those questions maybe come to the forefront of why aren't these guys getting bigger roles or getting more playing time. So uh, long-winded answer, yeah, I don't see anybody leaving who's a, a big part of this team this year um, that would be a surprise. Purdue beat writer for the Lafayette Journal-Courier, Sam King, is our guest. Sam, as I understand it, you got in a little bit of, maybe not a Twitter feud, but you dunked on a uh, podcast earlier this week in regards to factoids regarding Purdue basketball I'd like you to elaborate to our audience for those that don't follow you on Twitter at Samuel T. King why you had to set the record straight about Purdue uh, well there, I feel like I you know Purdue doesn't need me to defend it but sometimes I see just awful takes and you know one of those was uh, recently somebody said you can't beat Alabama if, if you know the Crimson Tide hit 18 threes in a, a game there's nobody in the country Arizona Purdue UConn included that can beat Alabama when it hits 18 threes and, and Purdue won a game, I think 92 or 94 to 88 earlier this year where uh, Alabama did hit 18 or 19 threes in that game. And I think hit 12 in the first half and only led by four. So, um, you know, you have to, I think you, Matt Painter has said this numerous times to beat Alabama, you have to outscore Alabama. And, you know, on that particular night uh, in Toronto, Purdue was able to do so, but, you know, I see a lot of bad takes, and I'm sure that every fan base has it. Um, I saw somebody the other day saying Miles Colvin should be starting over Fletcher Lawyer, and I, I didn't respond. But I was just like, these guys aren't even playing the same position. And, and you know, to to the point that Matt Painter makes so often is people that say some of this stuff they don't know basketball. So, um, and I'm not, not going to say I do, or I'm smarter than Matt Painter by any means because he's probably the the smartest basketball mind I've ever talked to. But um, you know, there's just a lot of bad takes on Twitter, and uh, you really start to see those when you are uh, coming off a loss, especially a loss to a team that you didn't expect to lose to. Situationally, has this team faced a little bit of everything you could ask for for a team with their level of expectations in terms of close games, in terms of needing second-half rallies, in terms of a couple of losses? Have they experienced, from a situational basketball standpoint, about as much as you could ask a team in terms of you want to win every game, but experience going into the tournament, not just including previous years, focusing solely on this year. I think the past week told us a lot about this team, and I know that pretty went one and one, but in both of those games, you're down at halftime. Uh, you're down eight to Minnesota, and you come back and win on your home floor. You're down five at Ohio State, and nothing's going your way, and you come out and tie the game with a minute and a half left. Now, I know Ohio State came back down and hit a shot to answer it to take the lead and ultimately win the game. But uh, Purdue was down double digits with 14 minutes to go at Ohio State and, and ties the game uh, with a lineup that was Caleb first, Ethan Morton, two guys who aren't going to shoot the ball, and then you know three other guys in the game who are scorers. So uh, that really told me a lot about this team 
you know, we can we feel like we can come back um, talking as Purdue uh, from any situation. And I think that Purdue has shown that this year, whether it be winning a high scoring game, winning with defense, whatever it takes, Purdue has shown a way to win games in a lot of different ways this season. Sam, I do this every once in a while with people. Sam King is our guest from the Lafayette JNC um, on the program talking about Purdue. I make a statement about like an observation, and then I allow the person who covers that team closer than I to grade my observation. So I'm going to make an observation or kind of a prognostication, and then I want you, Professor King, to grade it, okay? Sounds good. Um, Let's do it. I think Purdue is so battle-tested and can win in so many ways that they are obviously a very, very, very strong contender to go into the final weekend of the college basketball season. I think that their toughest game in the tournament may well be the second round when they go in a 9-8 matchup because the likelihood is the most that they could go up against an uber-athletic big conference team that might have underachieved over the course of the year a la a Texas or like you know your vintage like SEC team but has countless bodies that have length and speed which could be the things that interrupt Purdue and keep it out of its flow and that second game could actually be their most challenging and that if they get through that then they find their way to the final four thoughts I would 100% agree, so I guess my grade would be an A. And I had this conversation with a local high school coach here not too long ago, and we were talking about what kind of a team can beat Purdue in the tournament, and, and the names we were throwing out were, you know, an Auburn, or like you mentioned, a Texas. Um, you know, and Auburn's probably not going to be an 8-9 game. Correct. But, I mean, like uh, Memphis, if Memphis gets in and is like a 10 seed, right. you know, that kind of team, right? And here's a funny side story from that. Had Purdue won last year and Memphis won last year, they would have played in the second round. And I was at Columbus when Purdue lost, and I saw some Memphis staff members in the hallway once they they found out Purdue had gotten upset by a 16 seed. They were fist bumping and high fiving and thinking they had a cakewalk to the Sweet 16 and turn around and and lose to Florida Atlantic. So uh, (laughs) that's uh, that's not uh, relative to what you were talking about so much. But you know, I absolutely agree that you're going to face a probably a high major team in that second round game that is equally as battle tested and um, isn't going to be phased by seeing a seven foot four guy and some uh, sharp shooting guards and a, a, an elite point guard. So that is definitely probably the, the game that uh, if you're a Purdue fan, you should be fearful of most. I know everybody's going to say the 16 seed based on last year, but uh, that those eight, nine games, we see a lot of times that uh, that's where a one seed uh, gets tripped up. You ever play basketball, Sam, on one of those like hard rubber courts, like it's oh, not an actual wood floor, but usually like 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 churches will have it. Like it's kind of like a soft give rubber floor that you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. That, that's what the concourses are like at the Angel Stadium. Like the Angel okay. Stadium concourse, you're you it's when you get old like me, lower back and knees, very appreciative of it. Maybe they have a lot of retirees in Orange County. I don't know, but that's kudos to that stadium. And then Kauffman Stadium, which is where the Royals play, looks very similar because you got the waterfalls in the outfield, kind of a cookie cutter, nice view of I-70, but a lot of people don't know this, underground bomb shelter type tunnels that connect you over to Arrowhead if you are so venturous. So there you go. All righty. Uh, I hope to get Kansas City out of the way this summer. So, Well, it's not a far drive, seven and a half, eight hours, buddy. And um, you can just watch your speed in Missouri because they're – very, very, very finicky around Columbia. Uh, Sam, appreciate the time, man. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Again, Sam King from the Lafayette Journal and Courier. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Two o'clock hour underway on a Tuesday. How are you? My name is Jake Query. Jimmy Cook, the other voice you hear in this program. Eddie Garrison with us as well. It's Quarian Company here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Joining us now on the program, you can read his work at ESPN.com covering the Colts. Stephen Holder. Stephen, are you snoring or was that a dog in the background? What's going on there? What, what the hell is going on? Did I wake you up? 
uh, I, yeah, you could have, you very possibly did wake me up. Yes, very possibly. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but my first day back from vacation, too, man. With, that's the worst. That is. That's and rough, man. You got to go, like, read your emails. How, like, long, how long was your vacation? Um, I, I took off a week, and I was, I was gone. I was, like, out of the country. So, yeah, it's, it's tough, man. You, you were where out of the country? Can I guess what country you were in? It's not that exotic, but, yes, you can guess. Uh, let me ask you this. Did you cross an ocean? Uh, not, no, not really. Okay. Not, not, not really. You could, you could drive there. You wouldn't do it, but you could drive there. Okay. So you were in, uh, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Wrong coast. Um, east coast of Mexico, but that's on the West coast, isn't it? You know, I don't know. I've, believe it or not, I've only been to the border towns in Mexico. I, I, I once risked my life with a guy during a bachelor party that I was at in McAllen, Texas, and we went into some area of the strip clubs of Mexico. And my buddy, I, I went to use the bathroom and came back, and strange things were going on. And he says to me, you cannot tell anybody that we did this. And I said, I'll never say a word. And then the next morning, we went to the breakfast at the hotel, and he's holding court telling everybody about everything that happened. And I thought, okay, well, Of course. It's always the guy who says, don't tell anybody. Right. He tells everybody. And, and, uh, and so, I look back now, and I think, you know what? To be young and 25 and dumb again, right? Right, right. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I went to uh, Playa, Playa del Carmen. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Mexico, which is cool, like uh, about an hour from Cancun, uh, but it's not Cancun, which is a good thing. I always um, wanted to go on a vacation where you just play a Del Carmen Electra. I thought that'd be cool, right? <laughs> sure, let's do that too. So I, I assume um, the weather was good and the vacation was good, right? Yeah, because you know it's it's obviously hot, but the summer is like a different hot, right? Um, in Mexico, so it's you know you're talking you know nineties like you know, possibly mid nineties. Now it's like 80 and no humidity. So it was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. I've never gone, uh, this time of year. So highly recommend. Yes. Um, and Playa del Carmen. I mean, lots of people have been to to Cancun as have I. And this time we said, you know what, let's try something different. And we stayed at like this, like, uh, very traditional hotel, a very small, traditional Mexican, very Mexican, sort of hotel not you know super american and uh and playa del carmen is very much um i mean it's not it's not i wouldn't call it a hidden gem but it's also not like the las vegas strip or something and no one asked you about the franchise tag which was the best part about it right not at all it's strangely enough they said lot they asked me lots of things about tequila like do you want more but (laughs) oh yeah they Uh did not ask about the franchise tag but i'm all in now i'm back Okay, so before we get to the franchise tag talk, you've got to settle this discussion that we were just having. Go ahead. You have or have not, as you, Stephen Holder, native of the state of Florida, native of Miami, but also resident of Tampa, correct? Yeah, eight years in Tampa. Okay. Even if it was in an overflow auxiliary freelance situation, you have or have not been to the Daytona International Speedway? Uh, that is a good question. I have, um, I think I, I helped out on coverage one year on something and I'm trying to remember what the hell it was now. It wasn't the 500 itself. It was, it might've been, you know, some of the trials or something like that, but I have been there a grand total of one time in my life. Yes. But you have been, Yes, you have have or have not been to the Indianapolis motor speedway. Yes. Okay. Multiple times, yes. Want to make sure. Okay. All right, yeah. so 4 o'clock today, sometime just over two hours from now, we will, uh, if teams so choose, they can announce that they have franchise-tagged players. Um, in terms of the Indianapolis Colts, we are under the assumption that if they're going to use the tag, it would be on Michael Pittman Jr. So the two-part question for you, Stephen Holder, would be A, will they do that? And B, is it possible that they use the tag but not on Pittman? Okay. The first question: uh, Will they will they use the tag uh, on Pittman specifically? I actually think the odds are decent, like more than we've ever had uh, in in my time covering the Colts. This is, I think, the most realistic opportunity for it to actually happen, um, and and I think that's okay because there's an understanding here on both sides. 
and that's that's the good thing. Number one, uh, the Michael Pittman has said on the record, you know, I wouldn't mind checking out free agency and, and hitting the open market and just to see what's out there. It'd be kind of interesting. Well, if you're the Colts and you hear that, you're thinking, oh, oh, hell no, <laughs> you know, over our dead body. So I think that raises the stakes if you're the Colts. You have to say, okay, look, we cannot let this happen. And you might have to protect yourself with the franchise tag. Whether you agree with the concept of the franchise tag or not, it does limit players' uh, mobility and, and, and their ability to, um, you know, to negotiate. It clearly does that, right? So it's not in the best interest of the players. But it is what it is. It's a tool, and, and they're willing to use it, as Chris Ballard has said. So that's the first thing. The second thing is – and this is also something Michael Pittman addressed. He has said also on the record that the franchise tag is not the end all. It's not the end of the world. He feels like it could be the pathway to a negotiation and and reaching a deal. So, and that's typically what tends to happen. Not always, but in in many cases, that is what tends to happen. Um, I.E. Lamar Jackson a year ago, you know, so I, I think there's motivation on both sides here, but the franchise tag is a very convenient uh, tool for the Colts to say, okay, look, we can't chance it. We can't risk losing this guy, and we have to give ourselves the upper hand here. And it's business. If they do it, he won't like it maybe, but I think everybody involved will understand, and there won't be necessarily acrimony. Uh, I think they'll figure it out. And, and so anyway, you asked would they use it on any other player my guess is very unlikely. Uh, I think the the candidates you're talking about would be, oh, you know, like a, a Grover Stewart. I don't know Kenny Moore. I guess you could say if you're talking about their 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 key free agents. Uh, the problem with that is those two positions. I feel like if you're going to use the franchise tag, uh, the the one year salary is is an elite level salary which is much more than you would likely pay those guys. So I I don't think it behooves the Colts to consider that. Uh, So I don't see it happening. Colts beat writer for ESPN, Stephen Holder, is our guest. Stephen, the tag, depending on where you look, I think is supposed to be for wide receivers about 21 and a half, give or take. I've seen some estimations early on at 22, some at 20, but I think it's right around 21 and a half is the investment you would make for a first-time tagged player at the wide receiver position. I don't want to oversimplify this for Colts fans, but when I look at Michael Pittman Jr. and what he could command on the open market and the thought that maybe there's a team out there that is closer to contention than the Colts are right now that might procure his services if he was to hit the open market, why chance that? Why not just tag him? And then as you mentioned, and as he said in his media availabilities, the door is then open for negotiations of a contract extension. So is there any reason to not tag him unless they have a handshake agreement of, no, we're going to get a nice extension for you during this offseason period? And if there is not any reason that you shouldn't tag him, shouldn't this be something that happens right when the window opens at four? <laughs> right. Uh, I I do expect they'll sign him. I'm sorry. I, I do expect they'll tag him if they don't have a deal by the time that window closes. I, I think you, you leave it. You leave him untagged until you have to tag him. And that's why you'll see – and the reason for that – well, two things. Number one, you see that around the league. You'll see uh, that most of the tags will come in the 11th hour. And the reason for that is because it, it gives you a little bit of a deadline to work with. If you're, trying, if you're truly trying to negotiate, you could say – one side or the other could say, hey, let's, let's dive in here and let's try to get this done – you know, before we have to make a decision on the franchise tag. So it, it gives or it provides uh, some sense of urgency, which is a good thing, right? I mean, these deals tend to happen uh, when there is a clock ticking of some kind. So, so that's a good thing. Of course, both sides know it's not a real deadline. It's kind of an artificial deadline. So I'm not expecting it necessarily, but, but it, does, it does give you at least some kind of a it, it does create some urgency to work in. That's not a bad thing. Um, but I think your premise is right. I mean, why not tag him? Honestly, look, whatever you think about Michael Pittman as a fan, the, the $21 million a year, like, that's, that's like, 
in my opinion, that's the starting point for these talks. I mean, like, I'd agree with that. A lot more. This is all. This is going to be a lot more money than people might think. And I, I think people are starting to get it. But I have talked to a lot of people who are like, you can't pay that guy twenty million a year. Oh yeah, oh yeah, somebody will. And here's why: because if he made it to the open market, the franchise tag is not only available to the Colts; it's available to everybody. So those premier free agents that we're talking about, and look, they're good for our business. They're good for radio. They're good for clicks. They're good for all that, right? But those guys are getting tagged. (laughs) Okay, they're getting tagged, man. So when you actually get to free agency, when you talk about who's left, it's not going to be the same uh, the same crop of players that we are talking about now. So when you put a Michael Pittman into that field of, of actual available players, then he stands out at a different level, right? And so that's why I think uh, he will command quite a bit of money on the open market. I mean, we've seen this before. We see it every year. Some free agent gets a huge contract, and the the immediate outcry on social media is like, oh, my God, that's an overpay. Well, no, I mean, nothing's truly an overpay because the market is the market. Stephen, Stephen Holder is our guest from ESPN. Um, do they have? Let me ask you this. Let, let's say, if you had to, if you had to spitball it, the amount of money that Michael Pittman Jr. is going to average over the next three years if he stays a Colt is what twenty three million? Is that a fair number? I think that's that's where my head is at in that ballpark. Um, so let's see. I'm, I'm looking actually as we're talking. I always try to like. Make sure I'm not just talking out of my rear end. So let's look at wide receivers. Um, if we're looking at, mm, let's do it by um, average. All right, average um, on a yearly basis. What you're talking about is the top five. It starts with Tyreek Hill, 30 million on average. Devonte Adams, 28. Cooper Cup, 26. AJ Brown, 25. Stephon Diggs, 24. So. 23, it, it doesn't even get you in the top five. Okay, so we'll and, say and 25, I'm, okay, for the sake of the discussion. Yeah. We'll say 25. Okay. Does that leave them money, and does it give them temptation to then spend remaining cap to go out and get a second fiddle? I know that Josh Downs is a nice player, and Alec Pierce is – if you don't, then you are banking on Alec Pierce showing to be the guy that you drafted. Do right. they do they say Alec Pierce is our insurance policy, but we need to go out right now and get definitive guy we know can produce in addition to Pittman? Um, I I actually don't have a problem with that philosophy. I I'm with you. But do you I, think I like they do? Do the, do the Colts feel that way? You're asking? Yes. Yeah. I so I think I I think they think they need more weapons, but I don't necessarily expect it to be. Uh, a move that's seen as really aggressive. Like, and by that, I mean the first round pick or go out and, and sign a, a big ticket free agent and in free agency at wide receiver. I, I'm not necessarily expecting that I, I am expecting them to address it, but I also think they have done a better job over the years with those sort of middle tier free agents. That's where they've been, They've had success. Um, they have, really not signed any of the big ticket free agents. And, and those are the ones where you, you get a lot of misses too, uh, just in general, in free agency. I think the bigger the contract, the higher the bust rate with free agency. Um, obviously, there are some guys that are just much more proven and, and you get what you pay for. Uh, but, but generally, those guys don't make it to free agency. You're generally going to be taking some chances in free agency. So the trick is, and I don't know who fits this bill. I'd have to look at the free agent list and study it a little more. But the trick is, if you can find it, is to find who is that young free agent who is on the verge of taking the next step. And you bring him in, and then you put him you know, with a, an exciting young quarterback. You put him with a proven guy like Michael Pittman. You let Josh Downs do his thing. So now he's, he's, a, he's a cog in a bigger in a, in a bigger operation, that's exactly what you want. You want the, the young free agent who is getting ready to take the next step. step. That is, frankly, in many cases, that has been um, Chris Ballard's M.O., and it's, it's worked. It's actually been pretty successful. Now, 
it also puts a lot of stress on you in the draft, right? If you're going to target that type of free agent, then you've got to hit your draft picks, which is a different conversation. But as it relates to free agency, that's where I think teams have the most success uh, because you can be wrong, and yet it's, it's not punitive to you. Stephen Holder is our guest from ESPN.com. Stephen, how much, if at all, but in your coverage of the NFL, you've covered different administrations of different franchises, the Bucks, the Colts, you know, different general managers. When it comes to free agency, how much do they weigh their free agent urgency or the players that the positions that they need to fill based upon what they prognosticate could be available to them by that position in the draft? Are they two totally separate entities yeah. or do they look at one and say, you know, let's not overspend at that position because uh, we're going to get this guy in round three or they have a plethora of those guys we can get in round four, et cetera, et cetera. Or are they totally separate philosophies? No, uh, the, the conversations are related. There's no doubt. Uh, now, you can't go all in on that philosophy. You can't say, well, there's tons of of offensive guards in the draft. Um, you know, we'll be fine. We don't, we don't need one. Uh, you know, because draft picks – they develop at different rates, right? So, so expecting that draft pick to come in and, and have the kind of impact you need immediately, you know, look, you're taking a risk, certainly. Um, depending on the position, depending on the importance and the, the, the you know, the, the magnitude of the need, um, yes, you do factor that in, though. There's no doubt. I, I think particularly when it comes to depth, you know, when you're talking about you know, when you're talking about signing a, a frontline player or adding a frontline pl- player, um, you know, like a, a, a number one wide receiver or or something like that, then I think you know, relying totally on the draft, but you know, just bypassing it in free agency and saying, well, the draft has plenty of those guys, we'll be fine. I mean, maybe you don't want to do that. But it also, you know, there's different philosophies with different teams. I, but I do think you are correct. Yes, I think just about every team approaches it with that way or in that way, there is at least some consideration given to what does the draft look like for this position and, and how does that impact our free agent, um, you know, strategy or approach, et cetera. In fact, I mean, it's smart to do that. It's because you'll see, for example, Chris Ballard took that approach last year. I don't agree with it, but I'm just giving you an example. He took that approach last year with cornerback. He said, you know what? We like a lot of these corners in the draft. And they did. They drafted a bunch of DBs in the draft. It didn't work out because injuries hit, and then they had additional losses, you know, i.e. Um, Isaiah Rodgers. But, but I'm just saying that's an example of what we're talking about. But that's, why it's all, that's also why it's, it's tricky, right, because you can be wrong about it or you can forecast things in, in the wrong way. Uh, but you are correct. They absolutely do that, and I think you should do that. Yes. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And Stephen Holder is our guest. Stephen, you and I have had this back and forth before, and you brought it up again in highlighting where the Colts have had success in free agency underneath the Ballard administration, and that has been not taking the aggressive signing that potentially is a higher chance to bite you in the backside if it doesn't pan out, and instead being very good living in the middle of the margins, of finding average salary players and turning them into high-level football players. The counterpoint to that in this current era, though, is you have a unproven to this point, other than a couple of flashes, quarterback that could use as much assistance as possible to ensure as steady as possible of a de facto rookie year you could have. From the Colts' perspective, what is the likelihood that a philosophical shift happens where instead of doing the safe thing, which is spread the eggs a little bit for average market value players and playing it that way versus taking a big swing for the benefit of your quarterback, what is the likelihood a philosophical shift like that happens versus them going by what they've done and hoping they get a home run in the draft? So I think it's actually, uh, I think there's only a minimal chance that, that Chris Ballard and the Colts take a, or make a big shift 
in their free agent philosophy. I get the situation. I'm not disagreeing. I do think they are in an interesting spot right now. You know, they're, they're a team that they are squarely in the middle. They could not be any more in the middle than they are right now. You know what I mean? In, in terms of record, in terms of expectations, in terms of everything. They are, we don't, we have an odd number of games now, but they are the consummate like eight and 18, right? And, and that's okay. You know, we'll see what happens. But my point is, to take the next step, you, you obviously have to do some things different and, and guys have to play better. You have to add talent, all that stuff. Uh, so I think you're right. They, they do. It does beg the question whether they need to take a bigger swing here and there. However, where I do, I don't think they'll do that. What I do think could happen. And this is maybe where Chris Ballard loosens up a little bit is he takes more of those sort of shots in the margins, because I think, Last year in particular, he just did, really didn't. He just didn't. I mean, free agency consisted of what? Like Isaiah McKenzie? You know, it, it really wasn't. I'm trying to remember what their big moves were. There weren't any big moves for sure. But, I mean, they didn't even have sort of, you know, smaller moves in many cases. They had a very minimal action in free agency last year. I understand why to a degree. I get it. The team was in transition and all that. That's fine. But they're not there now. They are a team that if they if they can get some things right and figure some things out, they can take another step. And that could the difference between where they are now and taking that next step, it could be a big step, right? I mean, it could be division championship. It could be you advance in the playoffs. The next step for them is is something big, right? And it doesn't mean the Super Bowl, but it's still a, for them where they've been. It, it could be a big step. So you've got to get there, and and how you get there is the question. Uh, again. I don't see a free agent bonanza for Chris Ballard. All I'm asking or all I'm wondering is whether he takes a little bit more aggressive approach to filling his holes and not saying, uh, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll develop guys, you know, it's coaching and through the draft. That can happen too, but stop leaving so much to chance is what I'd say. Stephen, lastly, before we let you go, Stephen Holder, ESPN, our guest, um, I'm a little hesitant to ask this, but I do think that people are, still are curious um you know obviously it was when we were talking to you actually when Jim Irsay sent his tweet that he was on the mend he has tweeted yeah. a few times since then but is there any sort of an update I know you were on vacation I don't know how much you know you you were dialed into it then but is there any sort of an update to Jim Irsay not only his health but just his his progress and what his involvement will be throughout all of these processes I wouldn't say I have a lot of information on that, you know, for obvious reasons, not being around the last week or so. And and that's one of my goals this week is to kind of at least learn something. Like where are we at and, and what's next? And, and those are the questions that I have. Um, I do think the questions are, are important. It's not a matter of, you know, poking and, and prodding. Um, but, I mean, he's the chief decision maker for the organization. <laughs> so it's kind of important, right? I mean, and I think – Anytime you talk about privacy and whether we should report on things and all that, uh, I I respect all of those those principles, and I think you know you and I have talked about this off the air for sure. Uh, and I think there's also another side of it is I think you can respectfully um, report on and ask about and provide information in a respectful manner because he is a very newsworthy individual. There's no doubt about it. Um, Ultimately, Chris Ballard and Shane Steichen are running the Colts on a day-to-day basis. But if you don't think that that Jim Mercer is involved in every major decision, at least you know when he's when he's in the mix, and I don't know what his level of involvement is right now. But typically, he's he's getting a phone call uh, well ahead of every major decision. I absolutely, positively can tell you that for a fact and is involved in all those decisions. He might defer and that's fine. That's probably what he should do just as an owner and let your football people do the football. But, but yeah, he's involved and, and he's, he's deeply involved in all those decisions. So that makes it newsworthy. And I, I do think we uh, hopefully get some more uh, sunshine and, and, information on on where he's at and, and what's next for him. What for do you reason. think, Stephen, what do you think was the last if any, okay, if mm-hmm. any, in your estimation, what was the last decision that Jim Irsay made or 
mandated that showed total autonomy? Um, hmm. I don't know. I guess autonomy in terms of like that, that he was hands off in letting his people make the decision. No, the opposite. Or? What was the last decision he made where he listened, where he, he said, listen, mm-hmm. I, because I do think he's a very good owner. I think he has the I reputation of being an owner that does give his general managers, his coaches, you know, room and 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 leash and leniency but is there a decision you can think of where he basically walked into a room and said guys i know that i'm a great owner and i offer you those things but i'm not going to on this one i'm going to mandate we are making this move you know i honestly now there there could be others and and i'm just not aware of them the the last one that's obvious to me honestly is the hiring of just saturday and I think that's a good thing because as much as we we sort of ridiculed it and questioned it, rightfully, I don't have any regrets about anything we we said or wrote or any of that. Um, it was it was bizarre, but I do think the coaching search that produced Shane Steichen as head coach, I thought that told you all you needed to know. He clearly deferred there, in my right. estimation. He clearly deferred to his people uh, because I don't think you come out of that coaching search if you're Jim Mersey. We know how he how he ticks and how he thinks. I don't think he goes into that process saying, you know, this Shane Steichen guy, you know, I, I, I think that's the guy. The Carson Wentz Nothing. release, do you think that was one where he said, look, I don't care oh, what Oh, for you- sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. In fact, it, it, it wasn't a release. If it were up to Jim Ursay, it wouldn't have been a trade. I think it would have been a release. If or, that's right. Yeah, Ursay. trade, sorry. But no, no, you're right. You're not wrong. I'm saying – basically parting ways with Carson Wentz. Uh, that was a decision where the ball for that got got rolling from the top. Absolutely, positively, and a lot earlier than people even realized. Not long after that Jacksonville game, uh, those wheels were set in motion, at least in Jim Irsay's mind. Now I'm talking that 2021 Jacksonville game, obviously. Speaking of rolling, I'm looking at the rates here for hotels and airfare to play at El Carmen. <laughs> Fly into Cancun and, and get a uh, get a taxi. It's a cheaper way to do it. I, I think you can fly in the Playa del Carmen, but it's probably ridiculous. So I wouldn't do it. So check it out. Uh, uh, Highly recommend. 10 out of 10. Just don't take a taxi from uh, McAllen, Texas, into one of the border towns that has to go to strip clubs. That's all I'm saying. That is not as well advised. I was 25, you, you, right? You mean that's not going to end well? My buddy Cooper said, don't tell anybody what we did. I said, okay. And then the next day, he's just, guys, singing like a bird. He was the one drinking. I'm like, look, one of us has to be sober here because this could get real ugly real fast. Uh, Stephen right. Oldridge, what's that? You don't want to show up. On, you don't want to show up on like the State Department website. <laughs> that is exactly correct. Well, like I said, one of us had to be sober. Stephen, appreciate right. it, man. Welcome back. See you guys. All right, yeah. Stephen Holder, ESPN.com.